Rage Machine Books presents The Dark Worlds Podcast, examining the culture of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Welcome to The Dark Worlds Podcast. I'm M.D. Jackson. In this inaugural edition, we present G.W. Thomas, the publisher of Dark Worlds Quarterly, and myself, in conversation, trying to answer the question, why do we write pulp? Any historian will tell you, of course, that pulp got its name from the uh, paper that it was printed on. I think it was uh, Muncie who created the first pulps. He said it was the story that mattered, not the paper that it was printed on. But of course, it's come to mean something else since the type of stories that were printed in those magazines on that pulp paper. Though perhaps today it actually has an entirely different meaning. I don't know. What do you think? As far as the fiction goes, pulp came out of the explosion of magazines in the 1930s. Public hungry for entertainment, especially during the Depression. A lot of people hungry for cheap fiction and and the pulps just kind of filled the, filled the need. Pulp magazines... Conventional wisdom says they started in the 20s, 30s, you know, went through the to the 50s. But you were saying that pulp fiction started earlier than that. Well, certainly magazine fiction. I mean, you can make a distinction, I suppose. It starts in the 1880s with the uh, Strand magazine, you know, Sherlock Holmes, that kind of thing. Uh, that's when the genres begin, right? Mystery fiction or horror fiction. And, and a magazine that would publish those and identify those. But they weren't specialized, right? The Strand mm-hmm. Magazine mixes all kinds of different fiction together. And, and the magazines that came after, which were known as the soft weeklies, like Argosy and All Story, which is where Edgar S. Burroughs got his start. You know, you had a Western next to a romance, next to a jungle adventure. There was no real reason to be too particular. Any kind of, any kind of fiction that appealed to the family. Like the magazines were read by the entire family. Then the 1920s and 30s come along and you have huge competition. And one of the ways you beat your competition is by focusing on a particular kind of story. So I think the first pulp to actually have a one topic was a railroad magazine. So it was railroad stories. Okay. Uh, Science fiction, though, comes out of that as well. Uh, 1926, I believe. Uh, Hugo Gernsback creates amazing stories. Which he originally was going to, going to call science fiction. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and then is... around the same time, you also have Weird Tales creating a magazine just for horror fiction. So this is basically where genre begins. Where I mean, today you go walk into a bookstore, you have sections for mystery, for science fiction, for romance. This is kind of where it all started. And, and of course, each kind of fiction over time develops its own uh, set of features. Like, you know, the uh, detective story, the American style, of course, has the hard-boiled detective and you know there's going to be speakeasies and there'll be gangsters and corrupt politicians these all become part of that genre in the horror field it's more gothic stuff in romance there's you know the traditional romance plot of boy meets girl boy gets girl boy loses girl get mm-hmm. boy gets girl back right that and even among the genres there's these sub-genres Western romances. Are, right, like are, ranch romances. Ranch romances, yeah. Which, of course, promised the husband, you know, some shootouts and posses and all that kind of thing, but also a romantic story for the women. Mm-hmm. So, again, the whole family could read that. Much of the writing in the old pulps was excoriated 
considered to be as cheap as the paper. But in a lot of cases, some of these stories have ended up becoming classics. I was just reading an article, just now reading an article uh, listing some of the authors who wrote Pulp Fiction and Arthur C. Clarke got his start, you know, in the Pulp Fiction's O. Henry, Agatha Christie, uh, even Joseph Conrad. Uh, yeah, and, Joseph and, Conrad. Yeah, I, I'm not, it doesn't say where, but yeah. Uh, and I'm, of course, Tennessee Williams. He, he actually uh, wrote stories for some of the early Weird Tales. Actually, he had one story in Weird Tales, which was um, a story about an Egyptian queen who gets her vengeance it's hardly, um, the, you know, the kind of plays that he would write later, but that's where he got to start. I think he was about 16 years old. Yeah. Okay. So that it wasn't exactly Streetcar Named Desire, but uh, of course, H.G. Wells and H.P. Lovecraft. Burroughs, Bradbury, Rudyard Kipling. Hammett and Chandler. In uh, Black Mask. Uh, yeah, the, Detective Stanley Gardner. Pulp, Isaac Asimov. These writers that are venerated today got their start in the pulp magazines well i think back in the in the 30s anyway the the idea was you started wherever you could so that usually meant the pulps and then uh you then transitioned into the slicks which were the really high paying magazines that were Mm -hmm. intended for a much wealthier audience and then from there into book publishing and of course the brass ring what everybody wanted was you know to be in hardcovers a little bit different today yeah, back then, they, you know, an author would progress that way. But the pulp magazines also had their own sensibility. I mean, what would you do? What would you call a, a pulp story sensibility as opposed to, say, the something that would appear in the slicks? Well, yeah, again, right there, that's that's going to be the assumption that the editor who is buying your story has. So a pulp editor and a slick editor have got two very different agendas. A pulp story needs to start quickly. It needs to keep rolling, have lots of action. The characterization is not as important, which isn't to say there isn't any, but if you, uh, you know, spend long paragraphs describing the inner feelings of your characters, the, you know, editors are going to blue pencil that. And the audience was uh, working class. So you didn't really see a a lot of uh, stories that were kind of pushing um, more educated points of view. Your hero is a, a hard-boiled detective. He's a working-class guy. He's an adventurer. I mean, these are people that the audience could relate to, as to you know, opposed to some spoiled rich kid who never had a work a day in his life. Unless, of course, he's masquerading as a some sort of superhero at, at night. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. There's that one. Yeah. Despite the separation into genres, each each of these genres had wanted to have as much of a, a mass appeal as possible. Certainly. Uh, You want to sell lots of magazines. The most popular pulps sold in the millions. For a nickel apiece, that's a a lot of money when you add it all together. The type of writing that would appear in the the pulps, obviously stuff that's designed to move. It's not wanting to paint watercolor pictures with your words. You're wanting to basically write short, visceral scenes that that move the story along pretty quickly. I think it was Raymond Chandler who said that if things start to get slow, have someone come through the window with a gun. (laughs) So, yeah, you know, it, it has to move. It's, it's meant yeah. to keep you reading. Mm-hmm. And, and when we describe books nowadays, you say, oh, it was a page turner. That's not considered an insult. That, that is actually a very high praise. And Pulp Fiction was meant to be page turners. They weren't meant to be uh, slow and with long pauses for you to admire the wonderful wordage. Mm. It was meant to keep you reading. Uh, and, and a lot of them were short. A lot of the fiction was short fiction. A lot of the novels called novel-length stories, but not many of them topped 
60,000 words, which is today considered fairly light for a novel. The, well, uh, the not, not necessarily in science fiction, though. I mean, if we're talking about science fiction, even going back to Wells before the big pulp explosion, most of his novels, the, the, the good ones, uh, you know, War of the Worlds, Invisible Man, those, those are not that long. So some genres that lend themselves to, I think, lengthier books than others or treatments of those, those genres. But I mean, I think a good science fiction novel has ideas that it needs to get across and it does so. And, and there's not a lot of time spent on character building, which is, you know, one of the things that's been uh, criticized for in the past. Now, science fiction today is, is looking quite a bit different. We're having a, a lot of new writers that are bringing a more literary style to science fiction. And if that's your jam, you know, go for it. Uh, myself, personally, I'm going to be sticking to the pulp stuff. Mm -hmm. I like a, a story that moves. And so examples of pulp science fiction, I mean, amazing stories we mentioned, startling stories. Then you have like even some sort of hero pulp science fiction in, in the form of Captain Future, Edmund Hamilton, you know. And again, not, this isn't sort of a stop and smell the roses kind of no, it's, there's a problem and we have to solve it. Anybody who watches any kind of television, really, I mean, that's where the pulp setup kind of went to in a kind of regular TV show. There's a, you know, a problem and the team or the, you know, the characters have to solve it in so many commercials. Now, of course, TV's gotten a lot shorter. I mean, in the old days, that would have been 55 minutes. I think nowadays, a lot of shows are lucky if they get to 42, but... Mm. You know, it's still that same thing. You would change channel, watch something else, or stop streaming it or nowadays, I guess, if it, if it got dull. Yeah. Well, that's another thing. The, the pulp uh, type of stories, I mean, the pulps are gone, obviously, but uh, the pulp stories didn't die. They moved on into paperbacks. They moved on into into television. Uh, yeah. th they moved on into comic books. I mean, a lot of the comic books published by the same people who published the pulp magazines. That's right. The uh, publishers of Planet Stories also published Planet Comics, for example. Mm -hmm. If they were both priced about the same, it was a lot easier to get that dime from that kid to buy a copy of Planet Comics than to have all you know those people sit down and write all those stories for the magazine. So you could see where the pulp publishers were very much interested in moving into that form of publishing. It was a much easier, I think, uh, gig overall, and the expenses were lower. Just thinking about movies, a lot of movies, that, especially blockbuster movies, you know, and movies that have sequel after sequel after sequel are very redolent of the, the pulp writing. I mean, for, I'm just thinking of something like the Pirates of the Caribbean, those movies. I mean, that's that's basically a pulp idea that I guess run its course now. But No, I think they're doing another one. But are they? The, okay. <laughs> that, that, of course, is the, uh, the other thing about uh, sort of the pulp is you can pump out another one. Mm -hmm. It uh, like television, it's set up for you know to be episodic. So if Captain Future defeats his enemy in this issue, he can fight a different enemy next month, just as on in the films. You can just come up with another scenario, and away you go. Actually, so now I, I, in this article that I just that I just read, they mentioned current authors who basically are writing pulp style fiction. I mean, they mentioned Richard Stark and his Parker novels, those are a little earlier, but I mean, an author like Lee Child, who is a best-selling author now, I mean, he writes his um, Jack Reacher books, which are, are have also been turned into movies. Those are basically pulp stories. In in that the, the action has to move, it's, as you say, a page turner. The hero, the main character, Jack Reacher, doesn't really change from book to book. He's the same character in, in the first book as he is in the, the, the most recent. And you're right, that's very much a pulp thing. Uh, I don't think pulp writers 
usually you know planned or thought about that much as long as i still have the character around i can write another story mm. bang out another five thousand words and you know get 50 bucks and pay my rent and stay alive you know mm. and so to spend a lot of time worrying about the interior of that the life of that character just it wasn't happening and I think with a lot of iconic characters, we don't necessarily ask for that. I'm I'm surprised sometimes when people always say that, especially I know with young adult uh, fiction, you know, there has to be this growth of the character. Well, my favorite young adult uh, novels are the Harry Potter novels, and he really doesn't change any more than Tarzan or Doc Savage or, you know, any of these other iconic characters. Mm -hmm. They're, They're special. They are instantly recognizable to us. You say boy wizard and people know exactly who you mean. Okay. Well, like, so his situation changes, but, but his character basically remains. I mean, he does mature as he gets older, but he, you know, he starts off basically as a nice guy who's not in a very happy situation and becomes more powerful, but he's still basically a nice guy. Mm-hmm. His, you know, the death of uh, Dumbledore and the Wizard War and everything doesn't turn him into some crippled, mean, terrible person. Or, or you know, he's still just Harry Potter. And this is this is at odds with the the philosophy of the young adult publishing industry. In that, in that, uh, well, char- characters are supposed to grow and and learn and uh, the, the critics of it anyway. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, the publishers, I think, will just publish whatever sells. Yeah. But, you know, the, the critics, the, the people that actually look at this, and, and again, it depends on what, what your market is and what your hope is to do with that. I mean, if you want to write novels that teachers can make into um, novel studies for school, and that's a large part of the trade, mm-hmm. then that's, you know, that makes sense that that's what you would write. But if you want a book that a kid just loves and they can't wait for the next one to come out, I don't know that that's necessarily needs to be in there. I mean, Harry Potter sold a lot of books. Yeah, that's true. And I was so worrying about it. You had, you had people lining up to buy the newest book. I mean, that's that was that's a good problem to have for a for an author. <laughs> and it's very reminiscent of the way people were about Sherlock Holmes back in the eighteen nineties. You know, when uh, Conan Doyle killed him off, people wore our black armbands in mourning. You know. Uh-huh. And they just kept throwing money at him until he wrote more. <laughs> so I, I, I always wait to see that happen with uh, J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point someone's going to offer her, I don't know, five million bucks or something or some other amount of money that she can't refuse. And then there'll be more Harry Potter. And, and well, it, it is hard to, um, once you are successful, to break out into a different uh, genre. Mm-hmm. People associate you with that. I mean, of course, that's what Doyle was trying to avoid. He didn't want to be the Sherlock Holmes writer. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be remembered for you know other books that he was wanted to write. So sooner I get rid of this character, the better. Yeah, except that didn't work out so well. <laughs> well, you consider how many people are writing Sherlock Holmes novels nowadays, now that it's in the public domain. Yeah, actually, it's pretty uh, phenomenal. The, the character has far outlived the creator, which is uh-huh. an interesting idea. So, I mean, some of the most iconic characters in literature started out basically as pulp. Uh, well, but I mean, even Dickens was, I mean, his, his uh, novels were serialized in, in early pulp magazines. Than the, A little bit uh, different in his day, though, because um, he could pad out books and people didn't care. 
he could, you know, spend uh, three pages describing what the dinner was like. That's not something you could get away with in a, in a pulp magazine, you know. Dickens, of course, was, you know, super popular and he could get away with whatever he could get away with. Yeah. He is. He does remind me, though, of, of another writer nowadays, and that's and, Stephen King, who I've always considered to be the Charles Dickens of the our time. How do you how do you figure that? <laughs> well, part of that is the way that both of them write. They have a a set of characters, types mm-hmm. of character types, that they use, you know, over and over in different books. Um, for King, it's the the kid who doesn't have a dad. There's the mean drunk. There's the strange person who comes into their life. There's, mm-hmm. you know, different building blocks that they can use over and over. Yeah. And, and of course, we expect those to be there. It almost sounds like a criticism, like a negative criticism, but it's not. I mean, these are the images that Mr. King's personality, you know, creates. Mm-hmm. And if they weren't in those books, we wouldn't necessarily enjoy them. I mean, for example, um, some of the books that he's written about things like baseball mm-hmm. haven't probably sold as well as his horror fiction because going to those books, you go, oh, hmm, no mean drunk. Yeah. No, no dog with rabies. Hmm. So, uh, you know, as with J.K. Rowling or anyone else, you get kind of typecast, I guess, you know, as a as storyteller. And the people who really enjoy your voice don't really care. The voice is still there. But if you're bringing certain genre elements to a story and those aren't there, I have a feeling they walk away. Yeah, that's true. Stephen King doesn't, I mean, when he brings in a supernatural character or a supernatural force, he doesn't, he doesn't try to do anything literary with it. He doesn't try to subvert it. It, it, it is what it is. It's, you know, you know, Pennywise the Clown is a scary clown. You know, mm-hmm. the Overlook Hotel is a haunted house. As they say, it's not rocket science. I think for, I know for myself as a, as a writer, I like writing about monsters. Okay. Uh, I, I like science fiction. I like fantasy. I like horror. I even dip into the mystery genre sometimes, uh, weird Westerns. But the one element that is in all of them is monsters. Okay. So you say he doesn't subvert it, but in a way by having monsters, you already subverted it. Um, a monster is, usually an image that represents it's like a metaphor for something else mm-hmm. right so um a good example of this is i had a chance to um do some collaborating with a fellow named uh, jesus gonzalez or jf gonzalez mm-hmm. and he um had a book called survivor it's a really hard book to read it's really good if you like that kind of book. It's it's a woman who's kidnapped by uh, snuff filmmakers and how she survives it. Mm-hmm. Not my cup of tea. I, okay, so no super no supernatural elements. No, it, it's a horror book, but it's yeah. not a supernatural horror book. Mm-hmm. And I mean that kind of stuff. And and he shows how it can so easily be done too. I mean mm-hmm. that that is so frightening, but it's real world frightening. Mm-hmm. And for me, I need that metaphor of the supernatural monster to represent the horrors of the world. I, I, you know, so in a sense, I think um, in some ways, horror fans are, are a little escapist. You know, we're often accused of being an escapist um, literature and science fiction, fantasy horror. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you can 
look at things in a different way and sometimes in a deeper way through the metaphor of monsters and, and supernatural horror that you can't in a literal story. Because mm -hmm. in a literal story, you are trapped within reality, right? Mm -hmm. You can't just suddenly throw in something that would work in your story on a mechanical level, but you just know it would never happen in real life. So having a monster allows you to bring in things that are impossible. So monsters are, are metaphors for maybe ideas that are too big to, to, to do in a kind of a realistic style. Well, and again, this is, you know, we're talking about genre here. Mm -hmm. uh, like, why do I write a genre fiction? Well, for, for me to write something that was mainstream would reduce my toolbox hugely because I can't use any of that metaphor that I'm used to using mm -hmm. with, you know, monsters or other fantastic elements. So I really have no desire to write a mainstream journalistic or otherwise realistic story of any kind. If I want that, I can just go outside and talk to people. I can get enough of the real world. I don't need that. I like to write about things that are genrefied because they give you a certain template for a story. So if I'm writing a Western, of course, for me, it'll be a weird Western. I know I can have a, a sheriff and a town and a saloon and, you know, all those uh, regular Western elements. And the fun then is to bring in the weird elements. How could something supernatural happen in such a down-to-earth place as a, a you know, a, a town in the middle of Oklahoma back in the 1880s? So uh, by bringing in those horror elements to what is basically a realistic scenario, that's where all the fun is, you know, and that's, that's why I write genre fiction. And of course we were also asking, why are we writing pulp? Well, the pulp writers devised ways a long time ago, how to do that in a fast and fun way. So why wouldn't I write pulp? Because the story, the story moves, the story moves quickly. Interestingly, it, it keeps the, uh, as they say, it's a page turner. That's, that's not, a, not a, a bad thing at all. Keeps the reader engaged, keeps them you know, wanting to know what's going to happen next. Um, one of the things we often talk about with pulp magazines is the way that, especially stuff from the 30s, Robert E. Howard still has readers today, even though his, his body of work is confined to a small seg seg segment of time. His, his work has obviously found an audience today. Uh, same with H.P. Lovecraft. However, as you know, people have pointed out, these writers were men of their time. And a lot of things that sort of get brought with them along with them are things that in modern sensibilities is not quite accepting of things like racism, stereotypes. I mean, how do you, uh, what do you say to someone who says, I, you know, I can't read that because it's got too much, you know, of, of this sort of old attitude in it. Well, I, I think first you have to um, draw a line between is it a child who's reading it or is it an adult who's reading it? There's a very famous case where they wanted to uh, take the racism out of Huckleberry Finn yeah. and Mark Twain. Well, if you were writing a, a child's adaptation of that story, and it was marketed to eight-year-olds, let's say, mm -hmm. then it would be appropriate to take that stuff out. But for myself personally, I know that I would be insulted as an adult reading somebody's chopped up version of, of a classic. Um, I have enough intelligence and learning, and as most people do, to recognize when something's racist or sexist or 
just wrong-minded that I don't need to have someone do that for me. Not if I'm an adult. So yes, you're right. Reading uh, Robert Howard, for example, you are going to come across some pretty hard to take racism. And I will be honest, the stories that are really full of that, I'm not that fond of. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in Robert Howard. Some of it even comes from his ideas about race and history. He created his whole bizarre Hyborian age to be the background of his Conan stories. And he seems rather obsessed with, you know, following these different races within that. Now, does that mean I want to be a racist? No. Does that mean I want to promote those things? Certainly not. I would like to assume that every adult has that same ability to go, you know what? This is interesting. That's just nonsense and can walk away from the stuff they don't like. Lovecraft is a, quite an interesting case for me. You're right. He was certainly a man with some very wrong ideas. But the same time that people accuse him of, of racism, I think some of that comes from a book that he wrote, specifically a racist book. There's Lovecraft on paper and then there's the actual actions of the man. So I, I think it's too easy with most people, most writers, to just say, oh, look, here's one example, write them off. Lovecraft was a man who was stuck in the past, and he would have admitted that himself. He he wanted things to go back to a time that really, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> with so many nostalgic people, didn't really exist. Mm-hmm. So being uh, backward-looking, yeah, his attitudes are going to not gel I think even more important with Lovecraft, I mean, the man can definitely teach you how to tell a weird story. I mean, it was something he was very good at and helped uh, write some criticism on. But at the same time, his style was also backward looking. And um, the people who often imitate Lovecraft um, are, are learning some very bad writing habits. I think there's much better pulp writers to emulate style wise. Myself, personally, my favorites are uh, Earl Stanley Gardner and Frederick Brown, who wrote very concise, clear, fast-moving prose. They didn't spend a lot of time with the adjectives, as Lovecraft did. What's the difference between, say, an Earl Stanley Gardner and Ernest Hemingway? Uh, Very much. I mean, the type of story that Hemingway told, would you consider Hemingway a pulp writer? Well, certainly the literary people would disagree with me, and I, I think actually I would agree with them. It really comes down to what do the two writers want to say? They both had very clear modern styles. And you can, if you're just talking about the mechanics of writing, you mm-hmm. can look to either one. But then you got to look at intent. Um, Hemingway was trying, and again, he wrote many different things. So it depends which work you're talking about. He wrote trying, I think, to quantify the human experience. Earl Sanagardner, not so much. Yeah, He wanted to tell a good story. Perry Mason novel, for instance, you're not going to get a whole lot of human condition, but you're going to have a very entertaining read. So I think underneath the underlying intent of those two writers is very different. Hemingway has that sort of clean, truncated prose. He's not wasting a lot of verbiage, but his stories are not pulp. For instance, a clean, well-edited place would not fit in a, in a pulp magazine. No, occasionally his, his books can be sort of action-oriented, mm. but the point of them is never, you know, would not fit in, in a magazine, usually in a pulp magazine. So Earl Stanley Gardner, his uh, Perry Mason novels, uh, 
Raymond Chandler, with his Philip Marlowe stories. Chandler, I, I think, quite often gets put in in that same group. It's not really true. Dashiell Hammett, I would agree, very much the the clean, factual prose. I mean, he had been a, a private investigator, mm -hmm. Pinkerton, so he his style of writing a mystery story was very much like writing a report for um, you know, an investigation. Mm -hmm. But uh, Raymond Chandler, I, I find him quite literary at times. The Big Sleep, one of his most famous first books. The, the opening scene is uh, Philip Marlowe showing up at the home of the rich man who's going to hire him, the old sick dude with the two crazy daughters. And he spends two, three paragraphs describing the lobby in which there's a tapestry with some young guy trying to woo a girl in this, and he wanted to climb up there and help him out. You know, th these were not typical pulp things to do. You don't usually spend a lot of time describing the lobby or no. the front door of you know the house foyer. And, and so, of course, the, the opening paragraph of *The Big Sleep* is considered one of the best opening paragraph. People, you know, if there's a list of like ten best opening paragraphs, it's that that opening paragraph for the big sleep where he where he talks about how he was he was clean shaven sober and calling on th three million dollars or whatever however it goes if you look at chandler's intention though mm -hmm. his intention is no different than earl stanley gardner's or dashiell hammett's he just had a bit more of a flourish to his style a little more literary style but the intent is the same he belongs in that same group mm -hmm. that hemingway does not belong in mm -hmm. simply because what they're trying to do is different and a lot of these writers obviously were writing for a penny a word, writing to put food on the table, and therefore writing very quickly, trying to get as many words down so they get paid for them. I, I know with uh, Hammett, most of his novels were originally different short stories that were in pulp magazines that he then um, fixed up to make a novel out of. Mm -hmm. So he very much was a, a pulp first kind of guy. Chandler, I don't know about him. I, I know he typed with white gloves, if you can imagine, an Indeed. older gentleman. Because he, he actually started quite late in his career. He would put on these white gloves, and then he would type his stories. It just mm. so not Philip Harlow. Most people think about when they think about pulp writers is that they do write very fast. And people talk about, you know, pulp speed writing. I mean, it's an author like Lester Dent, for instance, who wrote the majority of the Doc Savage adventures. He wrote at ludicrous speed. Didn't he have like a couple of different typewriters with different novels going in out of each one? That's the story that he would have different, <laughs> each, each typewriter would have a different, different story, different novel going on it. And he would be writing three of them at the same time. Some of his output, I mean, his output would get as fast as I have been told 10,000 words a day, which, you know, for, for a lot of writers you know, who struggle to get a thousand words down on paper, you know, in a writing session that, you know, that's, that's just, that's just crazy talk. How many words can you put down in a, in any given time? Well, I, I'm, I'm very bad for like um, my writing habits. Mm -hmm. I do not recommend anyone doing what I do. So take that as a, a huge chunk of salt right here. I like to go to a restaurant or a cafe, mm -hmm. get a coffee, and then I can write easily 3,000 words in a shot, just drinking coffee and writing. And, and, and usually longhand, so then I have to type it up later, which I hate doing. So again, don't recommend that. But I find that once I've done that, I really don't do a lot of revising afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, I know Isaac Asimov bragged about this. He would say he did basically one copy and then I checked it over for errors and that was it. And again, you know, 
I'm sure there's critics out there who would say my work would improve greatly if I went back and rewrote it. But to me, once it's down on paper, to monkey with it or to rewrite it again, just uh, there would be no excitement to that. The same way that I, I don't use a lot of um, outlining. I basically think of where I want to start the scene, where I want to end the scene, and what's going to happen in the middle is a surprise to me, and I love it that way. I'm a pantser. I, like uh, that's, I was going to say, there's, a, there's, there's the, the plotters and then there's the pantsers. That is writers who write by the seat of their pants. Right. And, I, a, and I think the pantsers are more pulp writers. Most of those pulp writers in the old days were pantsers. Well, I know um, Seabury Quinn said that when he sat down to write the first um, Jules de Grandin mystery for Weird Tales, he had no idea what he was going to write. Mm-hmm. He just sat down and away he went and ended up writing 93 of them in the end. So... It obviously worked for him. And Sabre Quinn, one of the most popular writers, not one that most people remember. He's not like a household name, but during his tenure at at, at uh, Weird Tales, his stories were among the most popular. And he actually, I believe, got paid more than the, the standard rate for them as well mm-hmm. to keep them at the magazine because he could have taken them to, you know, some other magazine. Yeah. You know, there was no agreement that said you couldn't do that but yes he was considered the most popular writer of the magazine and i think some of that goes to his um here's a little pulp secret for you um he would always include a scene in which he had the um victim which is always female of course having her clothes torn off so (laughs) that the cover artist could you know uh, usually uh, Margaret Brundage could do a pastel painting of, you know, of that exciting derobing scene on the cover. And since he was smart enough to put those in, he, all, he got way more covers than most people. So that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, in, in, in a lot of old pulp stories, old pulp uh, inspired stories, you think, well, why, why, you know, why are the women always getting naked? It's like, that's so that they can have something the artist can put on the cover and, and, and sell to impressionable teenagers in the well, it was a highly, highly competitive market. I mean, imagine, we, we don't know the thrill of going to a newsstand back in the 1930s, and there were literally thousands of pulps to choose from. And, you know, they all had those garish covers because they're all trying to go, hey, me, 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 buy me, buy me. Mm-hmm. I've often said, if I invented a time machine, I would not worry about whether Jesus was really on the cross or, you know, what happened at the Battle of Hastings. I would go back in time to a newsstand and I would buy myself a complete collection of weird tales that were in pristine condition. That's my plan. Set your time machine to go forward one month, (laughs) grab the next issue. Well, I've actually got this figured out because in between, you know, buying them, you would have to go and find old money because you couldn't mm. give them new money. So I'd have to go back and find some nickels and dimes that were from the 1930s. And then I mm. could buy those lovely mm. magazines. You could always get, make money by going back in time and becoming a pulp writer. Oh, there's not a money in it. So I, <laughs> I often wonder if we would uh, find it more e- easier to sell. I mean, you got to think of how many magazines they were putting out. Mm-hmm. Even, even someone who was not a particularly good writer could sell something. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully work on their, you know, ability and improve over time. Mm-hmm. I don't really think we have much like that nowadays. No, certainly not the same market. The ebook market was kind of a little bit like that at the beginning. At the, the beginning, there was this sort of heyday where basically anyone who was savvy enough to put out an ebook could probably find a fairly large audience. That market has become saturated now. Sure. And, and it's it's harder harder and harder 
to uh, to find eyes to watch to look at uh, you know just because there's so much out there. It's so let's go back to our original question a bit. I want to talk about new pulp. Okay, I, I'm obviously a pulp writer. How about you? Yes, absolutely. I consider myself a pulp writer. I, I write as Jack McKenzie. Pretty much everything that Jack McKenzie writes, you know, would not have been out of place in an old pulp magazine. And that's by design. Not going to lie, not trying to have any literary pretensions, just going to be trying to tell a good, uh, a good story. And that would be the highest compliment. But I mean, how did, that, how did that happen, though? How did you end up there? I mean, you know, the education system here in Canada is pretty good. And there were a lot of teachers and curriculum people that really wanted to make sure you turned into Hemingway. <laughs> so why did you end up becoming Lester Dent? Well, there is a lot of people, there are a lot of teachers and a lot of people in the education system who would look at something like Lester Dent and I would bring Doc Savage novels to school uh, and they would, you know, basically say that stuff's going to rot your brain. Uh, the same attitude that, you know, a lot of people have towards comic books. But those were the things that, that inspired my imagination. And everyone has a story and I've got a story about how you first discovered a pulp hero. My first pulp experience was when I was, I mean, I always loved stuff on TV, Star Trek and anything sort of science fiction on TV. I like cartoons, but I, you know, I like Planet of the Apes, that sort of thing. Every summer we would go on vacation and usually it involved a long drive. And my parents stopped at a little town. It wasn't the town I lived in. It was a, some town along the way. And they said, you know, okay, your guys are going to have to buy some books or something to read along the way because we're tired of dealing with you. So they gave me a buck and they said, go to this used bookstore and find something to read. So I'm going through and I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm going to find. I'm just looking for stuff. And I see this paperback and it says Doc Savage and it's the other world. It's got a, a the painting, of course, uh, the 1970s, the Bantam books, they reprinted the old Doc Savage adventures. And this one was paperback. It had the James Bama painting and it's got Doc Savage holding a club and fending off these giant weasel creatures that are attacking him. So of course, 12 years old, that kind of thing just you know, it's it's like lights of fire in your imagination. And I had to pick it up and I, you know, read it fairly quickly. And then the next time I stopped in a used bookstore, I had to, I had to find another one. And I kept on looking for them and finding them and finding them and finding them. That was when I discovered that they had originally been printed in the pulp magazines from back in the thirties. And from there, I discovered other authors like Robert E. Howard, Edgar Rice Burroughs, basically the trifecta of <laughs> Of, of bad influences for as far as literary literary influences go. You ever get I, all 181 of them? Eventually, I did. Yes. Nice. Long after I, you know, I mean, I, I when I was looking, I wanted to get all 181 of them, but they hadn't actually published them. Uh, I picked up all of the old ones, and then Bantam started doing the omnibus editions to try and get the rest of the rest of them out. So yeah, I finally did. I, I would buy stuff just because it had a, a, a neat cover. Publishers in the seventies knew that you threw a, a Frazetta cover on a, on a book that has slightly fantasy kind of feel to it. And, and kids will buy it. Were those uh, immortal words in the tradition of what was your, what was your introduction to pulp fiction? Well, mine was very similar in that uh, it happened summer holidays, um, family trip. There's four kids and we're stuck in a tent trailer up in uh, Northern British Columbia and it's pouring rain <laughs> My mother must have just been going crazy, you know. So we stopped at a, a five and dime store along the way and I saw a wire rack with a bunch of black covered books on them and I checked them out and there was Neil Adams covers, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Tarzan novels with the Neil Adams covers and I bought Jungle Tales of Tarzan. And after that, I, I was 
I was gone. That was it. There was no chance I was ever going to be Ernest Hemingway after that. Not when I could swing through the trees with Tarzan and fight apes and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah the early pulp novels definitely influenced me as a writer uh, and as an artist. As M.D. Jackson, I, I do art for different magazines, but you know, my work is very definitely pulp inspired. In fact, that's, I've sent my portfolio around to some places and they say, yeah, it's great, but it's a little too pulpy for us. <laughs> it's like, and I couldn't feel bad about that. I mean, I, you know, didn't get the gig, but you know, they said my work had a pulp feel to it. So that was, that was fantastic for me. But it makes it very easy for you to do your own covers. Like, uh, your latest book, um, The Shattered Men. All of my favorite things about the old hero pulps, things like Doc Savage, The Shadow, The Avenger, except brought into a modern context. My thinking on that was that's the way that the original pulp writers would, would write. I mean, Doc Lester Dent was writing about things that were contemporaneous. He wasn't trying to set it in the 30s. Uh, he didn't have to do research. He just set it in you know his his time. Uh, just looked out the window. Just yeah. looked out the window. And I thought, well, why don't we do the same? I don't want to do the same thing. I was considering maybe doing it as a 30s kind of pulp because a lot of new pulp publishers do say, well, we want to publish pulp, but we want it to be in the 30s because that's where it belongs. But I think you can do it today. Looking out the window, as you say, and 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 figuring out what's going on in the world today and trying to turn that that whole idea of the pulp hero uh, the the hero pulp group like like Doc Savage and his and his group of Fabulous Five. Well, I thought, well, what I how do I bring that up into the modern day? So I created a a group of heroes who are gender and ethnically diverse, rather than trying to impose that on a an earlier sort of Doc Savage, for instance. I mean, all of his guys are white. Rather than trying to impose that on that, I thought, you know, let's just create a whole new series, a whole new uh, group that's that is that has that ethnicity, that racial diversity, and and gender diversity built in so so that's where that came from and uh, i think it's fairly successful and it's been selling fairly well so so is that new pulp then or i consider yeah it's it's considered new pulp but there's as i said there's different flavors of new pulp some people prefer it 30 style some people prefer it set in the modern day but i mean there's there's a lot of new pulp writers who call themselves new pulp writers who write that way for Derek ferguson for instance with his dylan novels he is a definitely a pulp character. He's a raconteur, uh, an agent provocateur. <laughs> and and Derek Ferguson has a lot of fun with him. He's got several Dylan novels, and they're all set in the, the modern times. And Joel Jenkins with his uh, Gantlet brothers, they're set in the 80s for some reason, but but they're definitely a pulp group. They're pulp, it's pulp writing, it's pulp. I've I've done several covers for for Joel as as MD Jackson, so I I get to read them. And they're exciting adventures. They're they move, they're uh, you know, they're set in sort of basically modern day Seattle and something, you know, that's an area that Joel is familiar with and he just is able to just, like you say, look out the window and start writing. I suppose the 80s has become distant enough now that it uh, has a bit of a glamour to it. I was just thinking Stranger Things mm-hmm. that in the 80s as well as the Happen Leonard series from uh, Bill Lansdale. Okay, are those set in the 80s? Yes. I didn't know that. Well, the show was. So maybe even the 80s has a little bit of a... Well, if I were setting something in the 1930s, I'd have to do a lot of research. For me, in order to get things right, I would definitely have to do a lot of digging through historical documents and, and try and you know understand the, the time period, which is probably a whole lot more work than I'm willing to do. The 80s, I could write about the 80s because I remember it. But for the most part, I'd rather stick to you know today. It's a little more accessible for me as a writer. I was just thinking of... Um the new Perry Mason set in the 30s, uh, which the original Perry Mason novels begin back then. Your novel has speakeasies in it. Again, person has to do a lot of research to, to pull that off convincingly. And you're almost going into the genre or subgenre of historical fiction at that point. Yeah, but if I were to write a Sherlock Holmes story, for instance, 
I would have to do a lot of research about Victorian England because that's as alien to me as a as another planet. You you love the you you can watch as many Victorian mysteries as you want, and I do like them. I I, I love being transported back into that time, and there there's a lot that I would be able to you know, to write on the fly, but I don't think I could be, I wouldn't be confident enough in my, uh, you know, my knowledge of the, of the time just to be able to write something on the fly. And if I were to write a Sherlock Holmes story, a lot of people expect the Sherlock Holmes stories to be written in that time period. It has to have the sort of that, that same feel, but that's probably one of the reasons why the series uh, Sherlock and by extension, the, the TV series Elementary has been so popular because they take the whole, that Sherlock Holmes idea and they bring it into the modern time, which which works surprisingly well for, especially with the, with the BBC Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. You wouldn't expect it. I, I certainly didn't expect it. It was a revelation to me that, that it, you know, by taking those two characters, that situation into the modern time when it, it worked so well. I mean, the Watson of the Holmes stories was a, a veteran, you know, army doctor uh, from Afghanistan. Watson in the modern series as a, a veteran medic from Afghanistan. It's like because there just happened to be a conflict in Afghanistan that he could have, you know, conceivably been part of, and and the whole, the whole thing just just worked so well. And it was it was surprising to me. You always think about you know that Sherlock Holmes belongs in that certain time, but he actually made the transition to modern times fairly easily. Yeah. I was just thinking also about um, inaccuracies. How they can really mess things up, though. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote a story about uh, Frankenstein. And illustrated it for a, a booklet, and I got the wrong gun. I had a hmm. the character using a revolver, but at that time there were no revolvers. So a really nice fan uh, pointed out to me exactly what kind of guns they did use, and hmm. sent me pictures and everything. Wow! So the fans can be very helpful in that respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking of another example though of a, a published author that made a mistake that just ruined a story for me. I believe it was called Cold Winter by Lorne D. Estelman. It's a Western that uh, brings his American character into Canada. And he goes into an RCMP or Northwest Mounted Police office and describes the Canadian flag in the corner. Uh, I would have thought Mr. Estelman, who was pretty good at research, would have known that that flag was invented in 1965. Yeah. And yeah, he just couldn't finish the book because it it just destroyed the illusion. So... Mm -hmm. If you're going to write historical stuff, you really do have to do the homework, I think. Mm-hmm. So so what's next for uh, Wild Incorporated? Are you going to write some more of those? I will write another one. The uh, first one is so, sold well enough that I think I should, uh, should write another one. Uh, it's going to be set in London. I know that. And uh, it's going to be called The Murderous Mr. Punch. And uh, the villain styles himself after, of course, the, you know, the Punch and Judy puppet show. So a lot of the murders that happen are going to be related to the incidents that happen in the traditional Punch and Judy stories. And there's going to be a giant crocodile in the sewer. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Can't, can't get much more pulpy than that. What about you? I'm, I'm working on Weird Westerns right now. A little, little project called uh, Devil's Gulch. Mm-hmm. It's a shared world, so I'm hoping to bring some other people in on it. You, of course, are invited well, uh, Jack yeah. McKenzie's intrigued, yeah. Yeah. So I, I quite enjoy the, the weird westerns mm-hmm. um, because I, I quite enjoy reading westerns and they kind of jazz me up for writing some actual weird westerns. So uh, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll read a little um, Peter Dawson or Luke Short and then switch over to a little bit of Lovecraft or 
Carl uh, Jacoby or someone like that uh, to just kind of get in the mood for mixing the two. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it should be fun. There is a lot more to this conversation, which we will present in an upcoming edition. The Dark Worlds podcast is presented by Rage Machine Books. Visit our website at darkworldsquarterly.gwthomas.org and browse our bookstore by clicking on the link that says Rage Machine Books or download free issues of Dark Worlds Quarterly magazine. Until next time, I'm M.D. Jackson. This has been a COC production.